Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Mastery, and I'm excited to have Trin Lenamaki, who's the founding partner at Sea Ventures, uh, which is a trusted capital platform for female co founded businesses and investors in Europe. And Trin was a far, former entrepreneur turned investor with experience from the Venture Collective, Founders Factory, and Startup boot, uh, Bootcamp. A big thanks to Anthony Chong from Lago for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Trin. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So, so Trin, you, you do have a, uh, have a great journey. You've been, uh, you know, on the founding team of a lot of fintech companies, especially MyChore, Cash and Go, Jobbiter. You've been part of Startup Bootcamp uh, and Founders Factory. Uh, what's, uh, you know, what, how did you, you know, start your journey in this crazy world of startups and venture capital? Yeah, sure. So actually, I started my first company that I joined as a founding team member was back in 2009, just after the recession or almost kind of coming out of the recession. And it was actually a consumer credit company back okay. at the days when FCA hadn't yet regulated the UK market for consumer lenders. Right. So I had um, an opportunity to to build up um, two companies in consumer lending space. Had a lot of experience from there um, and a lot of learnings. Um, and then after that, um, I felt that it's 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 not quite the industry I want to stay involved for a long time uh, because you're dealing with very vulnerable customers and um, wanted to move away from that. And uh, I set up a company in 2014 in London. That is actually an HR um, tech company and run that for three and a half years with my co-founder and sold my shares back to my uh, co-founder and um, went into investment side. Um, I was just always curious on um, how investors think uh, about um, how to, to best you know, convince them to, to back my company and, and had my own lessons learned in my previous company as well, how hard it actually was. And, um, and yeah, I, I actually, my first role was at Startup Bootcamp. Um, and uh, there we actually backed fintech companies. And also we were backed by corporates, uh, mainly by banks and financial institutions. We had some great companies out of our programs. We had Rails Bank, we had Penta Bank, some of the really good, well-known names, and a bunch of other great companies as well. And I then uh, headed uh, to uh, Founders Factory's investment team, where I looked after investments um, on behalf of EasyJet, The Guardian, Aviva, and um, another um, uh, PE fund actually from Asia. So my kind of coverage was very much across different sectors. So I looked at media tech companies. I looked at travel, aviation. Uh, I even did a due diligence on, a, on an airline company, believe me or not. Um, and uh, and looked a lot into insure tech, fintech, AI, and deep tech. Um, and then actually, um, I was invited to join um, a new fund, uh, the Venture Collective, that was just being set up in the U.S. market, and um, and it was a great opportunity to to join and see the journey of building the fund uh, from ground up. So I I joined the fund, um, didn't stay for very long because I I, I had a calling to really. Uh, support female-led businesses and I wanted to to go back into building uh, while also investing but focusing particularly on European market and UK market where my network is and that what actually led me to build uh, C Ventures. So, super interesting and 
Uh, you know, what would you believe would be your biggest takeaways from your time with Founders Factory and Startup Bootcamp, especially for listeners, you know, who would want to jump from, you know, an operator role to say an investor role? Absolutely. I think, you know, Founders Factory and Startup Bootcamp are very early stage investors. They're accelerators, right? So the models are very different. I would say that working in an accelerator investment team is incredibly intense. And, you know, if you can handle that, it really prepares you well to move to larger VC firms because you don't only diligence the companies, you do that as well, but you also have to, you know, work um, work with your corporate backers. You, you have to sell the value of the programs beyond just the money and also find the fit between your corporate backers and the value you deliver to them as well as to the companies but also um, uh, making sure that these businesses that you go into so early will become venture backable businesses and they have what it takes to to get to the next stage with the support of the operations within the programs and and the little capital that you're able to invest in them and also that you can help to find follow-on investors for them because you go in super early right you're you're going in almost that idea phase um so it, it was very very intense you know i led ics i prepared for the ics found stakeholders from corporates to attend them so they're right people behind the table to make the decisions as well as the the management team of founders factory and and uh, making sure really the the all the key decision makers are there um so it's it's quite intense and then obviously you have to negotiate and close the deal eventually as well so it's almost like the full cycle of what you have five ten people in a fund normally you'll do it just by yourself alone so it's it's definitely a great learning curve that was one learning but the other one i would say is that accelerator models are just very hard to make make it work um so if you look at traditional fund model which is normally a 220 model then with accelerators you need to charge much high operational costs, um, management fees then, because you have high operational costs and you need resources to deliver the value to the companies. So 220 model doesn't really work for accelerators if you have a traditional accelerator model, unless you have it as a sidecar fund. Um, So so also when you look at uh, from, from, from founders' perspective, you constantly need to prove the value, but a lot of the value doesn't come in cash. It comes... With with the uh, with the resources that you provide them, the support, the people behind it, and and you know that should then justify the equity. But it does really require good people, um, knowledgeable people, to build these strong team teams and and run these accelerators. Um, and I think that's why you know we have good accelerators, we have bad accelerators, medium accelerators, and we have very different opinions about accelerators. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely great um, great experience before I stepped into 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 fund structures and, and understanding how uh, traditional venture funds work. Interesting, and uh, and uh, you know uh, I I agree that it's not only the money, it's the resources and the advice, which is which is so valuable for founders. And uh, you know, before you stepped into the VC world, uh, what is the thing you know, uh, especially for for listeners who want to be who are budding venture capitalists, what what is the one thing you you wish you had known? before you started uh, your journey in venture capital? Yeah, I think there are quite a few things. I think um, one thing is, I think um, what I didn't think about um, is 
is really understanding how venture capitalists really work, work, how the models really work, the fund model and the economics behind it. And, um, you know, understanding how much money you need to raise in and, and multiple times in order to actually make the economics work. And also that venture capital world historically, and it still is, it's made um, to make wealthy people more wealthier. It is very hard um, to make it work if you don't come from wealth because it's so network driven, particularly right. the fundraising process itself. And the other thing actually that I would say, and that is more, you know, not just from a fund management perspective, but if you want to go and work in a VC, um, or be a VC, you know, associate, analyst, principal, partner, you know, have, however your career progresses, the management of your time, how you're constantly pulled in different directions and you need to start saying so many no's that you just, you know, never thought you would have to do that. And it's almost impossible to please everyone because it's just very easy to to lose yourself in this world and and um, forget that you have life outside of that. Mm. And it almost becomes your identity. Um, and you want to help so many people, but it's just, you know, as much of you out there and and you have to prioritize, you need to prioritize your time a lot. And I think managing and prioritizing your time will become the key skill set that anyone would need in, in this industry. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. Interesting. You made an interesting point that, uh, you know, you need to come from for wealth or have a big network, but what if, you know, somebody doesn't have that wealth or the power uh, or the family? Can, can can somebody, you know, from scratch build a network and, you know, uh, do well in venture capital? I think you can, yes. I mean, you have to hustle a lot, you know. I mean, if you look at some venture capitalists, you look at Harry Stebbings, for example, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's built... Um, his firm based on 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 his podcasts and and what he did with entrepreneurs and venture capitalists before and and really learning throughout that journey right so um, I think there are different ways to approach it to be honest um, building your network from scratch is very hard it requires the same hustle it requires as you you building a startup but the sell is even harder because you're not just selling a product you you're selling that they have to take a bet on you and trust you with the money. And it's not just a million or 500K, it's, you know, it's hundreds of millions or, or you know, maybe even starting off from, from 30 to 50 million. So it's, um, it's the trust that isn't quite there yet and it right. takes time to be built. So um, I would advise anyone who's starting it just to start with this relationship building journey very early on and, um, and start with high net worth, start with, um, start with family offices, start building these relationships, start sharing deal flow. And, and you know, there from onwards, um, start building relationships with institutionals because it takes the longest for them to actually get mm. to know you and understand if you have what it takes to, to actually build a fund. That totally makes sense. And, um, uh, you know, you, you started C Ventures where, where the goal is to close the gender funding gap uh, where you're helping our female fa- founders and and you built uh, 
a C Catalyst and Founders uh, program, which is supporting founders. So, and so how, how are you helping you know, female founders uh, in, in their journey? Yeah, so uh, when we bring, we usually bring in 10 founders per, per program and we set it up as a program because otherwise it's just really hard to manage it. Um, so we select uh, usually 10 companies out of um, 200 during six, six week process of sourcing. Um, that was the latest stats we had. And when we bring them in, um, we actually open up our networks of VCs, angels, um, bring them through the program through different sessions, like one-to-one sessions we organize, um, office hours. Um, we give every founder actually a, a mentor among VC. So what we're trying to do, we're trying to almost make venture capital more transparent and transfer all of the knowledge to to founders before they go and start raising these venture capital rounds. So they understand how VCs think and why they think so and how they can really um, adjust their pitch, adjust their vision accordingly and, and you know, understand why it's so different to raise money from VCs versus angels or bootstrapping it and what is required for the business to actually raise capital from VC funds and what the expectations are. And then we, we, we have different sessions from fundraising, um, uh, one-on-ones to um, you know, financial modeling, storytelling, pitch decks, um, but really about what we VCs want to see. Um, we bring in Sequoia, we bring, bring in Stride VC, we bring in other great funds who talk from their perspectives of what they want to see. Um, and obviously these mentors were then involved um, hopefully these organically convert into checks at some point because this relationship is built in time. We actually have seen 40 checks uh, last year from our investor community and we had 25 companies and these 25 companies actually ended up raising about 28, 30 million. It might seem a little, but if you think it's just one and a half years and they're all pre-seed seed companies raising average 1.5 million rounds, then it was actually really impressive to see that. Interesting. And, uh, you know, a company can never build, uh, you know, defensibility uh, on, on day one. But, but what are your thoughts on, you know, how can a company build defensibility over time uh, in a specific sector? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think it's really kind of um, well known that obviously technology is your defensibility, right? But I think today your moat can be also community, uh, building a strong ecosystem or community of, of, of customers, these loyal people who are in your community and will bring in um, new members. It's almost free marketing, right? So if you can build a sticky community and engage community, then I think you're lowering your customer acquisition cost already very early and, and you just need to prove out the consistency there. And also I think the strong brand positioning that is constant um, and, and finding a, a strategy how to be heard and seen, um, I think it's really important and gives the edge to, to a lot of companies who might not have the tech defensibility. So uh, we've, we've looked at companies and we've invested in companies that perhaps doesn't have the, the strongest tech defensibility, but have the community and the brand positioning that is completely um, right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just some of my thoughts. Got it. And, and how, how, do you, how do you analyze the, you know, the, uh, the venture growth market 
uh, especially in the in the UK and Europe? Um, that's a good question. Actually, it's something that um, it depends. I think what you want to get at, what you want to get out of me uh, on this one. But um, I think mostly what we see is uh, that founders need to listen more the customers and absorb the competitors um, as well as the trends um, within their market. Um, and if we look at UK and Europe, for example. Oftentimes, when founders want to expand from UK to the rest of the Europe, they don't take into consideration the constraints around language barriers, cultural barriers, um, regulations. And these are the things that, you know, oftentimes founders haven't thought through when they put that on their deck, for example. Um, and the other thing is what we, what we always want to see is Now, is there an opportunity to expand beyond Europe and UK? Is there an opportunity to expand to US? How many players are there already? Or if there are strong players in the US market and they are actually tackling with that problem in Europe and UK, then you know, can this be replicated here and, um, and really comparing these? Um, oftentimes, we've even spoken to US investors who are invested in similar space. Um, and just to understand what are the reasons they never expanded to European market, for example, um, uh, if they have a company in, in their portfolio and so on. Got it. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look at companies like Uber and, and, and Airbnb, uh, they, in the initial days, you know, in, investors in the thought that they would, uh, you know, uh, have, have a big market size. But obviously, they went on to become, you know, Decacons and you know some some really big companies. But how how do you look at you know market sizing and how do you assess market timing risk? Yeah, it's a really good uh, question, particularly around market timing, um, because how we look at market timing actually is how we think about it. And when we look at companies, we think about it every time. How, could have this company existed five years ago, and if so. Is it really a reason why you know it, 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 they're building it today? And probably they, they are competitors out there who, who are already doing this. Um, and um, and the other thing we think about often is, you know, is the market ready for that? We think about it a little bit less, but we want to see enough validation uh, in terms of okay, show me that. The market is ready. There is a demand. But what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this a little bit less is because I think it, if it could have existed before, it's an automated pass for me personally. I wouldn't look at a business that isn't innovating, looking into the future. Um, but a great story, actually. When I launched my previous business, we actually went to the market two years too early. And I really lived that through. And, you know, the the... The HR, the recruitment sector we were selling to, they definitely weren't ready for the technology that we had built. So um, two years later, I felt they were ready. Now in pandemic, they were definitely ready. <laughs> so so these, uh, you know, um, economical, political uh, situations um, also really kind of drive that thought process. Um And also, like we look at, you know, how many competitors there are already on the market. It, you know, in in a way, seeing a few competitors is, is good signaling, right? Um, if it's too competitive and there's no differential advantage, we we would really struggle. Um, in terms of how we assess the the market sizing, is really about do the do the 
do they actually understand how big the problem is that they're solving? And what we look at it, we look at it more from a practical perspective as well. We want to see founders, because they're pre-seed stage, to, to show that they've really gone out there and done the market research, spoken to their customers, maybe gotten some of them to sign up, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 free signups maybe in the wait list um, before they actually go and start um, generating revenues or launch the product. This is what we would want to see, that the, there's this homework done in a, in a more practical way rather than just putting a TAM and SAM on the market um, market slide, right? Mm, interesting. And, uh, and what do you think would be your biggest miss when it comes to, uh, sorry, your, your, your biggest hit when it comes to as, a, as an investor? And, you know, especially when, it, when you get a big hit, does it really change your mindset on how you invest into startups? Yeah, so I must say, I've been investing not for a very long time, personally with C and, and as an angel. So I would say that a biggest hit for me was our recent investment in Juno. We haven't seen a, an up round yet because we did that investment early this year. But what when we diligenced the company and looked at the market, it really made us realize how big the gap in the market is because um, Juno is actually an educational investment platform for women and very much tackling with what Elvest is doing in the US, uh, but more from an educational perspective. And what we realized is, you know, what we are trying to do here with C is also get more women to start investing, right, in our companies and um, in, in any companies out there. But in order to do that, we need to give women the tools and education in earlier age life cycle to understand how to even handle their finances better and start thinking about investing, you know, when they're in their 20s, early 20s. Um, so I think this is what has been missing on the market and women invest very differently. And, um, you know, most women um, don't have anyone to turn to, to learn from or understand how to invest. And the traditional platforms out there are targeting um, white male customers. So it's it's not the, the same. And if you look at, you know, where women go, uh, to learn about investments, they just go to the parents, they go to the boyfriends, they go to the family, and they manage the financials or um, or advise them what to do. So we really invested in Juno to give women the power to start taking control of their financial decisions and think about investing early on in their the life and think about money and how they handle money very early on in their life. Got it. And, and I, I really hope it's going to be a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name Juno. You know, sounds sounds interesting. I think it's uh, if I'm not wrong, Elixir uh, runs. Yes. Juno. Yeah. Uh, interesting. And and who do you think what would be your uh, biggest uh, miss when it comes to you know investing? You obviously have a lot of stories where you you missed on investing something, but 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 does it does it also affect your investment thesis uh, when you missed out a, a big miss? Yeah, I can tell you a story of a big miss, uh, but it wasn't an investment. It was an investment of my time. So it was yeah. back in 2012 or 13, something like that. And I was offered um, a job at TransferWise, now Wise, yeah. as the second employee, maybe third, second or third, very, very early days. They hadn't even raised from Peter Seal at the time yet. So it was just um, Chris and Tarvet, uh, a couple of other people and, um, and the devs in Ukraine, I think. And uh, yeah, I was offered a role. Um, we had two months of conversations, I think. And guess what? I decided to turn it down 
<laughs> and uh, I still think about it. And six months later, well, obviously, I saw the investment going in. Some of my friends went to work there. And I was thinking back. I was like, wow, this was, uh, this was not right, is it? <laughs> and, and now I think back at it and I was like, we all make these decisions at some point in our lives. And it really has, like, in a way, like, in, you know, today I'm investing in startups and I'm thinking back at this and thinking, how can you make sure that this is the one that takes off? Because at that time, I really wasn't sure. I, I had so many questions, particularly knowing the UK market fairly well. We were based yeah. in Estonia. I'm Estonian. And, um, and, and yeah, I had a lot of doubts. But I think how it affects me today and my investment decisions is uh, market research, validation, um, much more kind of diligence. Um, this is something we do a lot, even for very small checks that we do at sea. Um, we do a lot of diligence actually for for that amount of money, and um, yeah, I think you can you can write off a few risks uh, yeah. with that, and and at the same time, you know, you never know, right? It's yeah. it's uh, I think uh, what is it, eighty twenty ninety nine one. <laughs> <laughs> Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Hey, interesting. And, you know, it's your perspective as an operator, but uh, obviously you maybe knew the founder or the founding team and they uh, they wanted to have you on board. But, uh, but do you, do you think uh, you know listeners who w- would want to get onto a rocket ship should they should they also look at the uh, uh, at a thesis where you they're looking at the founder and the founding team and the impact they can make uh, because it's so early in, in the game that you know they don't know uh, where it's going to go but but do you think uh, it's more about the founder and the founding team uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the same way we we actually validate the companies at so early stages. We're looking at the team. We look at the market, look at the product, um, but the products will change. They will pivot, uh, but the people don't change. And the same way when people are looking at joining startups, I think what you can do is vet the teams. The same as investors would vet the team first at that early stage. And um, and particularly the expertise of the the, the people, the founders, uh, their experience within the sector, they, you know, they like how how technical they are. Do they have the tech capability? Um, their their ambitions, their their vision for the company, and really how they bring you along the journey with their vision as well. But um, very much coming down to to um, yeah, the, the the experience of the founders eventually. Or it makes sense. And um, I want to talk about C Ventures. You know, what what is the portfolio construction? How do you how do you look at uh, you know diversifying your portfolio? Sure. So um, we actually have built our con- con- portfolio construction model in a way that we would deploy about thirty tickets um, over the next two years and um, dedicate about thirty percent on follow ons. Um, and you know, as a small fund for a ten million fund, that um, it doesn't really give you much room for follow-ons, but I would say that 10 million is the minimum fund size where you can start doing follow-ons. Um, otherwise, you know, we are telling today to our founders, 
which funds can actually follow on potentially based on the fund size and why they need to ask funds how big the funds are and if they can do follow-ons. Um, but in terms of going back to our, our thesis and construction is we're looking across uh, four key sectors actually. We're looking at healthcare, fintech, uh, future work and sustainability. And uh, our primary focus is actually in the UK market about 70% and the rest of the 30s uh, in um, the rest of the Europe. And, you know, as every fund, we, we have modeled in some, some write-offs as well um, and, and, and some bigger bets, some, some smaller bets, but um, probably wouldn't go into too much detail in, at the moment. Got it. And, um, and I wanted to understand, uh, can, you, can, can you increase the ownership, uh, especially if, as a small fund, can you increase the ownership to your best companies uh, since you're also looking at following up uh, on your investments, at least, you know, I would say around 20%. Is that something which is possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think you need to look at at least minimum 10 million funds, but I would even say that it's too small. Like 20 million funds starts giving you more flexibility of doing follow-ons um, in about 30% of the, usually the standard is 30, 40% of the companies. Mm -hmm. And we follow that standard as well uh, with our small fund. Um, eventually, otherwise, you're just going to be diluted out because you know, investing in pre-seed and seed, um, you you left almost with nothing if you don't do follow-ons in some of the best companies. Mm, got it. And uh, and do you, do you also have the similar thesis when you're looking at capital concentration on a certain industry? Like, do you do you, do you look at you know thirty percent of your funds getting into sustainability versus fintech? I would say just quite equal, actually. Um, we do probably have a little bit more focus on fintech because this is where our backgrounds are. And uh, we probably also have more concentration around B2B rather than B2C uh, when we look at the, the sectors. Um, so, so, yeah, I would say there would be more around fintech and B2B. Got it. And, um, uh, you, you know, you've been a successful operator and now you're VC. Um, you know, how can, how can the, the VC ecosystem uh, have more founders and investors, especially women founders and investors, especially, you know, uh, since Selena Williams just found out that there are only 2% of the money gets into female founders, and that's, that's a really bad <laughs> metric. Uh, but but how, how, how do you think it's going to improve uh, over the years and uh, what should be uh, the thesis for female founders? Absolutely. I think um, there's, there's so many ways to look at it, right? I think what we are trying to do right now and, and one way to look at it is give women who are open to start doing angel investing an opportunity to, to actually put in small tickets into the rounds that they normally wouldn't get access to. Uh, at see we, we actually we realize that this is what we can do when we actually are helping founders first to find a lead investor and then we go in with a smaller check. But these smaller checks that we put together at the moment for our SPVs, many of these investors are actually small ticket angel investors who come into these deals and they they wouldn't be able to to get on these larger cap tables um, of seven million five million rounds with five five to ten k checks and we're trying to give um, these female angels the opportunity to almost get access to these venture back rounds through us um, so they get part of these big deals. It's almost like democratizing the access to venture capital for small angel investors. And nowadays, syndications and SPVs will allow to do that. And I think the more women we get to invest, 
the more capital would drive faster to female founders. But I think we we obviously need a systematic change in the whole industry. We need to look at the VC industry as a whole, um, the processes in venture capital, the way, you know, the biases in the venture capital, the way we question the founders, the way we diligence the companies and and where our referrals come from, particularly considering that today still majority of of the funds are led by male GPs. Um, yeah. So where do where do their deal flow come from? Where does their deal flow come comes from, right? Um, and I think for that you need also more women VCs. You need more women decision makers in funds um, and and in higher positions. So they they can participate. The ICs they have the votes. They can they can take the calls and they can drive these these investments in order to actually make a difference. And oftentimes it also comes to what the industries that women understand better where there are massive gaps in the market and um, and male investors maybe just don't understand these markets well enough, um, don't have networks within the, these markets. So um, the, I think there's a lot to be done. And uh, obviously we can just overall make the whole venture capital industry a bit more transparent for founders and and support them um, understanding how VCs think, and especially for female founders. And that's why we put together the program as well um, to, because the industry itself, it works in silos and it's almost like a closed uh, circle that isn't accessible for anyone who isn't close to, to this circle. So um, we're trying to really kind of open up and, and bring in VCs who are really open and transparent and helpful with the founders. Uh, navigating through the fundraising journey and, and prepare them for it. Um, so, so I think that's like something we can we can definitely start from already. And uh, and yeah, like depending like not depending even on gender, but everyone to to look at um, sectors where women are innovating and just doing a little bit more work to reach the businesses that are founded by 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 women. Um, so, so I think that is very important and also understand that we're not doing that only for the impact, but if you're investing in businesses that at least has one female founder alongside with a male co-founder, you're ready, you're backing the diversity and your returns will be better. Um, and actually at C as well, we don't only back female only teams. We are fully backing male, female mixed teams because we truly believe that diverse founders perform better and there, there, there's proof out there about that already. So I think you know funds just need to do more work to to reach these networks and and dig deeper. Yeah, no, absolutely, really, really well put through. And uh, uh, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? So actually, I had a favorite business book when I started a startup, and that was Guy Kawasaki's The Art of Start. And I remember that so clearly because I was reading that book and it was so exciting. And it, it just, I it just still remember it. There's so many other startup books and how to start, but I, I still clearly remember it was really, really well written. And, and I think the advice, um, I'm still thinking about the advice um, today when, when I'm still operating and building a business alongside building a fund, but it really was practical and useful. But recently, I, I actually read uh, a book called um, 4,000 Weeks, and it actually makes you think that you have 4,000 weeks in your life, which, which seems really little, right? And it makes you really think about the time and puts time in perspective, how we think about the time and use it um, effectively um, 
And I think um, anyone who is in venture capital needs to do that. So yeah, it, it was a great one. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes. And and, and Guy Kawasaki was a, was a past guest on on the show, and he he uh, and I think he loved reading his last book, which is Vice Guy. Uh, that was great. Yeah, I love to meet him one day. I still haven't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's very approachable. I think it's, he's very kind to to come on the pod. Uh, we'll 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 put that on the show notes. And if you could go back in time when you started uh, C Ventures, what is the one thing you would have you would have focused on or done anything differently? Uh, it's a great question, and you know what? I've actually thought about myself a lot recently. And one thing I would have done, which I think I shouldn't have, is I focused too much attention attention on building the fund from day one. Uh, whilst I learned very quickly that you first need to build up your thesis, your track record, and almost understand where your strengths are, and also wasting too much time on taking calls with institutional investors. And you know, vetting them, understanding what they want, it has been useful. I don't regret it, but there was also a lot of time and stressful moments that I could have um, avoided uh, if I maybe knew a bit more, structured it a bit a bit better, maybe yeah, had more experience. But these things come with an experience. Um, so for any new fund managers, emerging fund managers, I would say really think that through. And uh, and think a lot about your differentiation first, and how you can build out this differentiation, and showing it in a more practical way rather than just talking theory. Today, when I look at our work, one and a half years in, I'm so confident about our traction and and what what we have sh- what we can show to investors rather than just talk theory. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's what what I've thought about. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, that's a great advice and. Um, and what's your favorite online tools? Example: Gmail, Slack, Zoom. <laughs> Good question. I'm really simple when it comes to online tools. Can you imagine? I still don't use Superhuman. Um, <laughs> or everyone is using it from VC uh, industry, at least. But I, I would say like, um, well, Gmail is my world uh, still. Um, but Monday is a great tool. Uh, we use Monday for a lot of things um, today when we still don't have funds to invest in a very good um, like CRM for deal tracking or monitoring. So we use Monday for that, but we also use Monday for you know uh, structuring our, our, our tasks, our days, our priorities, but also like building our lists. So yeah, it's been great to be honest. Uh, we need to grow out of it at some point, but it does the thing for now. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll put, put that in the show notes. And, and Trin, uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and, and know more about C-Ventures? Um, I think my LinkedIn would be the best um, to reach out to me. Um, and and then I can come back to you with my email uh, if we could continue our conversations. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. And Trin, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you for having me, Rohit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.